Welcome to Truth Jihad Audio Visual. I'm Kevin Barrett doing one version or another of this show since 2006. I've been looking for the most uh, heretical voices who have something to say that's worth paying attention to. And that quest has led me through a long list of issues all the way to the one that can get you locked up if you have the wrong view of history. And that is, of course, the big H, the World War II Holocaust narrative. And it's starting to come under more scrutiny right now as we're seeing an actual Holocaust in Gaza legitimized by the Holocaust story of World War II. So I think this is a good time for people to be open to a conversation with revisionists. And my, uh, I think my favorite go-to revision, I've got a lot of people I've talked to on this subject, uh, Nick Collerstrom many times, of course, but uh, Gerber Rudolph may be doing more than anybody in terms of actual research and publishing to push the revisionist cause. So let's talk about his great new project, the Holocaust Encyclopedia. So welcome, Germer. How are you doing? Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, and I, I do appreciate your courage in sticking by your convictions, even in the face of enormous pressure, um, having been sent to jail, all this sort of thing. Uh, so just to start off with, I have to express that admiration and say, uh, keep up the great work on that. Uh, never, never back down. Yeah, I keep my conviction in spite of convictions. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, hopefully there won't be too many more convictions. Uh, so let's go to the share screen here and look at the slideshow. Here it is. Uh, here we are in the midst of an actual Holocaust, a certified genocide. The International Criminal Court says there's probable cause that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Germer, your thoughts. Yeah, there's some some uh, screenshots here, some images from what's going on in, in Gaza. That was the initial stage in October. You can quickly go to the next slide. Shows another uh, one, uh, how it looks like. That was October. It's worse now and more widespread throughout Gaza. Initially, it started, of course, only in the north. Uh, can go to the next one, just get the impressions of what's going on. That was in 2023. But look there, it's two years earlier, 2021. We had, um, if you can start that with the next click. Um, Oops, let's go back to that and see if I can make it play. Oh. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, here, I can, I can we play. Don't have to play. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, okay. There we go. Here we go. Oh, okay. It won't. It doesn't matter. Well, let's go to the next one. Okay. So the next one, there we go. Today is my first yeah. day as U.S. Secretary of State. And recording this message is one of the first things I'm doing because Holocaust Remembrance Day matters. Oh. I'm not seeing it on the screen. I don't know whether. Oh, okay. Here. Let, Today is my first yeah, let, day let me, uh, as Secretary of State. Okay. Just a moment. Let me pull this back to. I, I'm seeing the screen, but you're not. No. Okay. Yeah. Let me restart the share screen and we'll. Look at this one more time. Okay, yeah, we have it. okay. Today is my first day as U.S. Secretary of State. And recording this message is one of the first things I'm doing. Because Holocaust Remembrance Day matters a great deal. It matters to me personally as the stepson of a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, so what we've seen here and what we've seen in the next scenes, U.S. presidents uh, visiting memorial sites. The Holocaust plays an enormously important role in the West as two foreign policies, particularly in the, in the Middle East. 
And we see the results right now, Israel using it as an excuse and as a justification to do anything they consider necessary to prevent any uh, action against their interest, against their policies in the Middle East. And um, so the Holocaust is center stage, so to say, in, in politics, not just in the Middle East, but in the in the which we see with Anthony Blinken. Yeah, the very first thing he does come into office is commemorating this event and declaring it's a very important event. Uh, indeed, you can say it's the most important event in Western policies that you have to pay proper attention to, because if you don't, your career is over. You can dis disagree on a lot of political issues. Quabblings, wobblings among, uh, among the parties are, are normal. But on that one issue, everyone has to uh, toe the, uh, the Zionists, the Israeli, the Jewish party yeah. line as they are out of office. Isn't that interesting? So, Lincoln, so, he, Lincoln goes on diplomatic missions, and the first thing he says is he introduces himself by saying, I'm, a, I'm uh, the descendant of Holocaust survivors. A stepson. So not directly his descendant, but uh, evidently he had a, a step parent who was, was that, yes. Yeah. Um, My first so, is U.S. Secretary of State. Now, that being such an important thing, if you just use the, the, the cursor, the left and right arrow, it moves to the next slide. Okay. Uh, now, you are, you're in the editing mode. You need to go to play. And now, just today is my first day as yeah. U.S. Secretary of State. And recording this reason, message. Not working, left, I think, because you... Left arrow and right arrow? Yes, they don't work in my Mac here, so... I will have to find a better way to get through the slide. Mouse click. Just with a mouse click, it should go to the next. Yes, I know it should, but it doesn't. Um, hmm, that's very interesting. I, th I think it's because it was created in a different uh, format. So anyway, here we are on the next slide. And is, is this another uh, video? Uh, yes, it shows Assad just before the conflict uh, or around that time, actually uh, denying that there were 6 million victims and um replay it yeah okay. that was just around the time when they when the conflict exploded in in gaza and of course you have on the next slide you have older footage um with uh, uh, you skipped two actually okay yeah this this is the one you want you have consistently denied the Holocaust happened. You have called it a lie. And I'm just curious. I have some photos. These are dead bodies from a German concentration camp taken by the Associated Press. Mr. President, is this photo fabricated? Is this photo a lie? No. No. Yeah. I want to stop you. I interrupt you. Uh, President Ahmadinejad has been... Uh, during his his, his uh, time in office, outspoken about the Holocaust being abused for political purposes, and he has invited revisionists to speak and to hold conferences in his country. Um, uh, but in this particular situation, he is caught off guard by a journalist, journalist waving a, an image of dead bodies, which is on the next slide, if you can move to the next slide. I don't know. Uh, this is what is shown there. It shows dead bodies, and um, Ahmadinejad just says no. Uh, there were many dead bodies. Fact of the matter is, of course, we don't know. The viewer doesn't know. Ahmadinejad wouldn't know 
who are these dead bodies we have shown there? Who took the photos? Who are the victims? Who were the, the circumstances of, or, or perpetrators that killed them? Uh, by which means there's no way of, of knowing that. That really and, uh, just the interviewer, a... doesn't it? When when the interviewer uses such a transparently uh, fallacious tactic. Yeah, but it is would of course be uh, important for Amadinja or anyone who gets interviewed in that way, who, who the journalist tries to corner this way to to point that out. But please first explain to me what we are seeing there, uh, because that is a photo uh, that was taken, as she says, by Associated Press. That is to say, by U.S. American uh, media. They can have been taken only in the area where the U.S. Army liberated uh, uh, camps or, or occupied areas where there were dead bodies. And in none of the areas where the United States Army came to, to occupy in Germany it was their so-called extermination camp. So anyone they found dead was not the result of uh, claimed extermination measures of mass murder, but uh, victims of the circumstances of, of the end of the war when uh, all of Germany was a giant heap of corpses, so to say, with civilians dying by the thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions outside the camps. And of course, anyone who was in a, inside a camp or a prison fared even worse. Um, and that was not by deliberate planning, but by the total collapse of Germany's infrastructure. Right. So this is a circumstance showing, that, showing this that Yeah, showing this picture is just so... Uh, irrelevant. I mean, this is such a good example of something I've encountered over and over, which is people defending the official Holocaust narrative offer such horrifically bad arguments that they make the other side's case for it. Yeah, if you go to the next slide, there is something you can counter. You know, here, here is a, a, another uh, um, photo that was taken at the beginning of the war by German investigators who marched into Poland. Uh, with a claim that they tried to to um, intervene with the uh, and stop the Polish ethnic cleansing that was going on. Now, as soon as the war broke out, there were pogroms against ethnic Germans in in, in Poland, and this is a mass grave where where uh, dead ethnic Germans uh, can be seen. Uh, so th this war had fifty million plus minus dead persons as a result and there are a lot of photos of them and uh when we talk about the holocaust there would be roughly plus or minus 10 percent of them uh, as is claimed by the mainstream uh, but uh the, the other 90 percent uh, should be 90 percent of the photos we get to see but we never get to see them we always get uh to show get to see photos that claim those part of those uh so-called six million um but never the context of a war where millions upon millions upon millions were dying. And then you get a picture waved in your face and you don't know how to counter that. Now, to get the right arguments to know when you're cornered by a, a, a journalist, a mainstream journalist who, who tries to trick you into looking bad, uh, it is good for people like Amadini Judd, like Assad, like anyone else who is uh, who steps out uh, into the public and challenges uh not only the abuse of the Holocaust narrative for uh, ulterior motives, uh, but also who tries to challenge the narrative itself, needs to have a proper knowledge base to do so. And on the, on the next image, actually, you see what I try to help people with is not ending up uh, with egg on their face. <laughs> so there's your egg on your face. If you're cornered by a mainstream journalist, 
you're challenging the Holocaust narrative and you don't know what you're talking about, then you may, uh, any journalist can very quickly make you look like a fool if you don't know what you're doing. So, so does that mean we all, have to have buy some... on, we all have to buy the Holocaust encyclopedia and memorize its contents? No, not memorize it. Uh, I have, um, if you, if that is basically what we try to offer. Uh, the encyclopedia, if you go to the next one, it's available in print, it's online accessible. We have, oh yeah, that's a step before that. Over the past 30 years, we have published a lot of material, uh, forensic and archival research on, on pretty much every aspect of the, the, the core topics of the Holocaust, that's the extermination claims. And that information has become so overwhelming and, and uh, so huge that it's very difficult to wrap your head around to contain all this information because it's not organized in any way, making it easily accessible. If you are looking for a certain topic, a buzzword, you can't readily know where, where in these books can you find it. So what we've done over the past uh, year, basically, is create an encyclopedia that fulfills that role. On the next screen, you can see that. Um, we have uh, it in a printed copy. We have it online accessible under holocaustencyclopedia.com, completely free. Everyone can can look up the uh, any buzzword, can look, can search for things, and we also offer a free download for a, a an ebook that can be carried around on, on any device, on a smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever you want. And the, the free version comes with a little bit of, of advertising for our other products. Um, uh, so, just quick, quick question: is, why, why, why did you pick the name nukebook.org for the website? That is a nickname that has developed uh, very quickly after we put it out. It says this this book nukes the the mainstream Holocaust narrative. Okay, and uh, Holocaust Encyclopedia is unwieldy. It is also not very descriptive in terms of uh, what exactly uh, does it mean. There are already four other Holocaust encyclopedias out there, all mainstream. And there's just another one with kind of the same title. You know, only this subtitle gives you a hint, unsentered and unconstrained. Of course, the other ones claim the same thing. If not expressively, then, then implicitly they all say, no, we're not getting censored. We're writing what we really believe, and we don't constrain ourselves to write what we think needs to be in there. The problem is in their heads, with their raising, and with their upcoming in a, in a um, civilization in a culture that uh, imbues people with the idea that they have to send the, that people have to send the, their thoughts already in their heads. So um, we took that as a second second website. Then it's easier to to memorize, easier to type. It's just shorter. New book. It's a nickname. Okay, sounds good. Well, let's just hope the ADL doesn't succeed in nuking that website. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but seriously, uh, having all of this available in a way that it can't easily be removed is really important, given the kind of censorship we've seen in the past uh, five to seven years. Yes, that's why we have the free download. So uh, we hope people make make plenty of use downloading the free version and, and posting and plastering it all over the place. Um, we don't track on the website who's downloading. Uh, there is no tracking software. We don't even know how many uh, are being downloaded because we really want to make it without cookies, without tracking, without anything, so that nobody has uh, needs to fear that that they get logged somewhere with their IP or whatever. You know, you know, you need a Jewish business agent, Gerimer, to help you um, track people so you can then spam them with advertisements to sell them more revisionist material. Yeah, well, the, the free version has advertisements in it. Uh, that's that's the what you have to put up with if you use the free version. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, sounds good. So what's uh what's next here? The uh family Weiss? Well it, is yeah, it, a little bit yeah? about about the, the background. Um the the term Holocaust became popular with the uh TV series in 1978. Before that, it wasn't really called the Holocaust. It became a, a, a registered trademark, so to say, only uh, since 1978. If you go uh, to the next slide, however, we see, or the next slides, we see that the term itself has been used in connection with persecution of Jews already much earlier than the New York Times. Here you see a, an article from 1993, uh, 1903, another one from 1903, where the term is used in connection. And then we go a little farther next year. A couple of years later, in 1905, you have, again, the term Holocaust. And, and then the first time it occurs in the context of the Second World War is in 1942. On the next slide, um, again, that's the, the New York Times. Um, and that was in, in late 1942. Um, so we uh, that is the term Holocaust. The iconic six million figures on the next slide, we get, can see uh, a, a history of that figure. Uh, in connection with persecution or the threat of Jewish um, uh, extermination, it goes back to the 1800s. Like the six million figure has been used uh, as an iconic number for persecuted, uh, suppressed Jews. In 1900, it was put into context with Zionism, six million arguments, suffering mainly in, in Russia, of suffering Jews in favor of Zionism. So the idea of a Holocaust against Jews and six million suffering being uh, at the brink of dying or being exterminated, it's much older than the Second World War. It's even older than the First World War. It goes back to the, the late 1800s and the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And let me get your response to, to an attempted uh, counter-argument that I heard back when I was doing Holocaust debates on my radio show years ago. Somebody on the other side said that you can actually find a fair number of other numbers of millions of Jews in similar kinds of references. Uh, so it's it, it's not entirely clear that the six million is that uh, much more common than the three, four or five million and so on. Yeah, we have a documentary that's the first Holocaust, uh, the surprising origin of the six million number. And uh, uh, in that context, I've made a search for uh, the numbers five million and seven million and even four million. And you can show the six million is definitely already before the Second World War, the predominant number. <clears throat> there are some uh, claiming five million and seven million. But you find that the same way with the current Holocaust narrative on the Second World War Holocaust. The predominant number is six million, but there are some scholars claiming five million and some sources claiming seven million or even more. So um, inevitably numbers spread, and that's been the case always. But six million has been the predominant number before and it's still today. Interesting. Okay. Uh so yeah, here. Yeah, there are some examples that just goes through them. We can quickly uh, go through them. That shows just I'm not making this up. There are the actual um, New York Times articles where you can see the six million uh, named right. here in connection with Zionism, and there uh, it is actually when Germany won in the West in the Second World War over France uh, in, in June 25th. France, I think, capitulated on that uh, date, and Germany was asking for. Uh, for peace and I thought the war is over and now we can all go home but then they said no um, six million are doomed for destruction if we let Hitler get away with it That's it's actually turning they, things uh, on the its Holocaust head because by that time they hadn't started then it's I mean the, the official That's story right. there was yeah, the gassing not a single June yeah yeah um, 
because things escalated after that, there was no peace treaty and we didn't go home and, and it was over with. Uh, that's when, uh, in the context of the war in the East and the escalation with the, the air war and so forth, that's when uh, the Holocaust said to have started. So because uh, Britain decided not to make peace with Germany, Hitler then is supposed to have escalated the whole affair and uh, a year, a little over a year after that, started implementing what we now call the Holocaust. That's the mainstream narrative. And so um, this this piece of news there turns the reality on its head. Uh, had we had peace in Europe in 1940, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, pretty safe to say. Right. So, yeah, war propaganda doing its usual job, sort, sort of like the uh, the 40 beheaded babies claim that we heard uh, with right. the October attacks. So um, here's a question. Do so, you deny the Holocaust? <laughs> do you deny the Holocaust? This is something that is, uh, you know, I have seen that with Ahmadinejad. He was consistently denied the Holocaust. The question itself is so dumb. And uh, the reason for that is because there is no such thing as the Holocaust. There is no one event that is narrowly defined that could be described as the Holocaust. If we go to the next slide, it gives you a little bit of an idea. Uh, this is the fate that awaits you if you're accused in public, um, uh, if you deny the Holocaust. You're called a revisionist, Holocaust denier, and that's what what what's going to happen with you. <laughs> I've experienced and in the they, past. They, it calling, they called me that before I even knew anything about the topic. Just randomly, because I was a 9-11 truther, somebody, they started uh, claiming I was a Holocaust denier in order to try to smear the 9-11 truth movement. Yeah. So anyway, people uh, go completely berserk if they think you, you deny the Holocaust. So it's a, the worst accusation that can happen next to being a Nazi itself. But not being a Nazi is better only because of the Holocaust. So it's all linked together and, and all the other... Wait a minute, uh, I'm, I'm not that crazy about Nazis, even though I'm not so sure about the Holocaust. So it's it's possible that's right. <laughs> to dislike Nazis, not, not, not believe in the Holocaust. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, I'm on the same page with you there. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, what do you do if, if that accusation comes up? Uh, and that's what I just said. It makes no sense because there's no such thing as the Holocaust. Um, if we go to the next slide. Um, and this is this has got to be a video. We can see the two, uh, a little bit of a flowchart of what the Holocaust actually is. And uh, also gives an idea of how the encyclopedia is organized. You can actually follow these trails. You go to the entry on the Holocaust in there under H, and it tells you where to go if you want to delve into the topic more deeply and go systematically about learning about it. So you can't just use the encyclopedia as a reference book looking up certain things, but you can also consistently uh, learn about it by following these paths. The flowchart is given in the encyclopedia, in the printed version, but also in the online version. In the online version, you can actually click on the words you see here and go to each entry to learn about this. Now, what we're seeing here is a massive complexity of locations, of events, of weapons, uh, the controversies involved, uh, documents talking about it, wartime leaders talking about it, the effect it has on the on the uh, victims, what victim groups are included, sometimes not just Jews, but other groups are included in that term, umbrella term as well. Then we have the results for various countries in the demography. So we're talking about an, a set of events that spanned four years, an entire continent, uh, and is said to have affected at least six million people. 
course, you have the 6 million alleged victims and you have the millions and millions of survivors, so they are affected too. So we're talking about a massively complex historical set of events that we have uh, invented, you, uh, yeah, come to use this one term Holocaust to cover it all, an umbrella term. Um, so if you if you say or ask, do you deny the Holocaust? The, the proper answer to that should be, this makes no sense because there is no such thing as the Holocaust. The Holocaust is a massively complex issue, a set of events. And uh, the question here should probably what, uh, be what uh, aspect of which subtopic of this event do you challenge? Mm-hmm. Right. Because evidently, there were a lot of ghettos, camps, there were events happening that nobody can deny. There were, uh, Zyklon B was massively used in camps. There were crema- uh, cremation furnaces. There were open air incineration. All kinds of things were going on that, that cannot be denied that are part of what is subsumed under under the Holocaust, but certain aspects of it are misrepresented, are exaggerated or invented. But to categorically say you deny or accuse you deny is just makes no sense. Right. And in order to know the complexity, to make people who want to step into it and challenge it, challenge not only the abuse of the narrative for current political purposes, but also want to point out that things that the narrative itself is corrupt as it is um, conveyed today by by the mainstream requires, first of all, an understanding how complex the issue is so that you don't go out on a limb thinking you know it because you read a little bit here and there and you have heard some, um, some convincing but maybe superficial arguments. And then you end up, as initially mentioned, with egg on your face, which mm-hmm. you shouldn't want to. Right. So you need to to know your stuff, and it starts with knowing there is no such thing as the Holocaust. It's well, an umbrella it, term. Yeah, if we simplify, simplify the debate, we sometimes talk about the so-called holy trinity of the official Holocaust narrative, the uh, six million total Jewish victims, the uh, intentionality of a bureaucratic German governmental plan to try to exterminate as many Jews as they could get their hands on, and uh, finally that millions were killed in gas chambers. So those those are the three elements that revisionists strongly contest. And my yeah, it is yeah. reflected here, of course, intentionality instruments, which uh, the gas chambers are the are the iconic murder weapon that is supposed to be unique to the Holocaust. Mass executions and, and starvation and disease have been the mass killers of of uh, in humanity before. Uh, but not gas chambers. Uh, that's unique. Yeah, you see that here in the organizational chart reflected to some degree. And uh, the challenge is, of course, not in, in murders as such. When it comes to shootings in the East, mass shootings did happen. They, 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 the question is uh, the order of magnitude. Uh, in, in in some cases, also the intention, the background of them, why did they happen. Uh, but when it comes to gas chambers, that's a different story. And the revisionist I would say that the hardcore revisionist stands on it is that no homicidal gas chamber, mobile or stationary, ever existed. Mm-hmm. So that's an invention uh, of wartime propaganda, a figment of the imagination. And uh, the six million, of course, that's a much more complex topic. We're talking about what did six million die? Did uh, three million die? Did one million die? Some even say it was much more than six million, and then they come up with other victim groups. Numbers can go up as twenty-five millions that are subsumed under the Holocaust term, including 
Slavs, gypsies, homosexuals, and, and all kinds of victim groups. Um, but yeah, uh, still, the, the Holocaust, when you look at how the mainstream defines it, um, you find uh, a lot of people consider different things. The imagination that a lot of people have, if somebody is accused of denying the Holocaust, they think they deny that the camps existed. They deny that Jews were deported. They deny that they were stuck in ghettos. They deny that they died in masses, that they were crematorium furnaces where they were burned and so forth. There are aspects to the narrative that is assumed you deny when this claim is made, you deny the Holocaust, which is not true. Mm. There are aspects of it which is being challenged, refuted, denied, whatever you want to call it, but there are other aspects to it which are not. And this is a, a very important uh, point to distinguish when we're talking about all these photos that were made of, of the corpses. Do you deny that? This is not the point. The point is, is that part of the Holocaust? And you can rightly say, no, it's not, because these people were not victims of intentional industrialized mass murder. They were victims of a collapsing nation at the end of a war. Hmm. That's so what, on the next chart, okay. on the next chart, you, you see something that you will not find in the in the mainstream uh, uh, encyclopedias, and that is talking about the evidence. Mainstream encyclopedias give you a prepackaged narrative that you are to believe. They will not tell you what evidence it's based on. They will not tell you um, that our perception of a certain event or a certain climate location has changed over time and why it has changed. It has changed dramatically in some cases. Usually victim uh, death toll claims have been had to be drastically reduced by orders of magnitude for most of the camps. And um, some some claimed murder methods have been swept under the carpet that were completely evented. Uh, but when it comes to actually any murder case, and we're talking about six million claimed murder cases in this case, the most important thing about any murder case when you investigate it is uh, traces of the crime. If you don't produce traces of a victim, you can't even name a victim. You, I accuse you, you have murdered someone. I go to court with that. And what evidence do you have? I cannot name, give you the name of the person you murdered. I cannot give you... Give the court any trace of the the, the 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 victim. I cannot show the the court any trace of the murder weapon. Uh, then uh, that would never go to trial. Now in this case, this went to trial with that flimsy accusation, and it was in the Nuremberg trials. It was uh, cast into legal stone, even though there were basically only uh, witness testimony. Where, where, where and, do Israelis um, get their names? They have, uh, they have many. I think they have something like close to six million or many millions of names of ostensible Holocaust victims. Yes, uh, well, I'm talking about now. Uh, to give you an example, we have the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial, where uh, uh, I don't know how many defendants were on there. I can't remember. Uh, I think two dozen defendants or so were were on trial there, and some of them were convicted for. Uh, uh, having assisted in, in the murder of, say, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands for some of the extermination camps, Treblinka and, and, and Berzak, assisted in the murder of 100,000 people. But the court didn't have a single name of any of those 100,000 murdered people. 
So you get murdered, not just for one person for he, whom I don't even mention by name who it was, but for 100,000, and I'm not giving any single name, any single identity, and I have no trace of, of uh, any of those victims, and I have no proof that they were murdered in the first place other than claims, and I have no trace and no no proof that any murder weapon ever existed, let alone was employed for that purpose. Nothing. It's all based on claims by witnesses. And uh, there are, of course, a number of them that are very, very famous, like the uh, confessions of uh, claimed perpetrators, like Rudolf First, the former commandant, very important one, and others to a similar effect. Um, but if you go to the mainstream encyclopedias and you look up uh, these names of the main perpetrators or some names of, of uh, star witnesses, I would call survivors who have become famous, like Ellie Weasel um, and, uh, or uh, Rudolf Verba. And, and others uh, who have testified uh, at war's end or even after the war, you will not find in those encyclopedias a, a summary of what they have claimed. Um, you will find biographic entries, uh, what their fate was during the war, uh, but basically that's it. Our encyclopedia gives you more than 300 of the most important witness statements, both alleged perpetrators, and alleged uh, survivors who, who claim to have been eyewitnesses of what was going on, uh, and, and some bystanders too. They are only very briefly introduced with a biography because in that context, biography are not that important. What is important is, and that is summarized then, what did they claim? And then it was it is looked into, that is what history, historiography, what historians are supposed to do is source criticism. That's the most important tool of a historian. Maybe hagiography is what they're actually doing with the other encyclopedias. They're, they're giving the biographies because they're they're basically sainted by virtue of having been martyred. Or yeah, I'll, I'll get to that a little later when I'm talking about it. We can maybe uh, next slide. Um, so this one, anyway, this shows the complexity of, of all the, the evidence that is available, physical evidence, documents, and so forth. Now, this is the encyclopedia. The, the, the best known, uh, the first one that it appeared in 1990, uh, issued by Israel's Yad Vashem Center, and has some more than 200 contributing authors, most of them uh, are Jewish. And um, I've made an analysis of, of this uh, encyclopedia, and the result is that uh, roughly 30% of its entries deal with the actual Holocaust, with uh, crime locations, with um, major events uh, that are said to have happened whereas 70% do not. Another 30%, uh, that is to say, uh, a large part of, of these 70% that don't deal with the Holocaust itself are entries on Jewish and non-Jewish um, figures that have become famous in some way as martyrs, as uh, prominent victims, as resistance fighters, as uh, chroniclers, and as, as what they call the righteous Gentiles helping Jews. So the, in that sense, yeah, it's a hagiolatry. It's just the praising of, of the saints and the good people in the Holocaust. And uh, on the other hand, this encyclopedia also has many entries on Germans and uh, persons allied with the Germans during the war who were on the other side of the fence, uh, giving bio biographies of, of Germans and, and uh, depicting them in, and of course, expectedly negative way were in charge of some way during the third Reich and their allied governments doing this and that um now this is uh 
maybe good for an encyclopedia on personalities during the Second World War or on personalities during the Third Reich. But on the Holocaust, you should focus on people who were actually acting on the Holocaust and then should talk about, about what they did. And particularly if they survived the war, what did they testify? What uh, documents do we have to implicate them? And what can we conclude from them? But you won't find that in the encyclopedia. They have biographies, very brief biographies, on on Himmler, on 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 Hitler, on uh, Heydrich, and um, Paul and Glucks, and all the other people involved in concentration camps. Uh, uh, but you will not find in there anything about what they said. Uh, Hitler made a lot of statements. Uh, Goebbels made a lot of statements. Himmler made a lot of statements. Um, most of them uh, are innocuous. Some of them are. Um, implying that something sinister was going on, you would expect them to show that, but they don't. You will find all this in our encyclopedia. You go to the names and you find all the, the, the things that they said during the war, documents that were found after the war and so forth. So, okay. Um, this is just an example here of, of the, the, this was a chronicler from the Warsaw Ghetto and he has a huge entry um, what would be really important is to find out what did he chronicle. Uh, the person is, is really not all that important, but here for them it is because it's it's a, a, a saint because he chronicled what was going on. Uh, it's interesting to actually see the documents that they produced in the Warsaw Ghetto under under his leadership, under Emmanuel Rinaldo's leadership, and to juxtapose them with with, with what we know today and what. Um, what can be concluded from material and from, from documentary evidence, we can see that Emmanuel Ringelblum was involved in collecting propaganda. Some of it true, some of it not true. And it's not surprising he was sitting in a ghetto in Warsaw and couldn't travel around, so he was just collecting stuff. Um, but that is today seen as the the one of the main sources of knowing what has been going on, for instance, the Treblinka extermination camp and also the Helmut extermination camp. But when we look at the documents, what they actually collected, what they found, and we uh, analyze it, you get a completely different picture. None of it is found in that encyclopedia, but you'll find it in our encyclopedia. We talk about the actual evidence, not praising a person and his life, but looking at the evidence that, that they claim to have salvaged or produced. The next one shows another case where... Um, uh, the 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 righteous among the nations is a big entry in there again celebration of of people who acted this way or that it's just assumed that the Holocaust happened you swallow the narrative and then we celebrate all the people who survived who chronically it and and who who helped but it's not going to the evidence itself what is the Holocaust what do we know about it how do we know about it what is the evidence let's look at it. Nothing in it. It has 1,900 pages of vacuity. Hmm. Next slide. Surprise me. Yeah. Of course, they were a little bit too early for the forensic research, most of which it has done after 1990. Uh, so uh, there is an updated uh, edition that came out in 2000 that should have included a little bit of it that shows the, the one big find that they had after digging out uh, Berserk extermination camp, quote unquote. They found a garage. You see the repair pit there in the middle. That's all they found. They didn't find a, a gas chamber, but only a car garage with a repair pit. So no gas chamber. Gas chamber and, there. Um, right. And with, with um, Treblinka, the same thing uh, starting in 2012, I think, until 2014, they were 
doing soundings there only with, with ground penetrating radars. If the mainstream narrative were true, pretty much the entire area of the camp should consist of mass graves uh, because 700,000, at least 700,000 people are said to have been buried there. And the area would need to have that many mass graves would cover pretty much the whole camp. What you can see in, on the uh, on this graph here are the numbered white spots that were areas where the soil is disturbed. So they didn't dig anything out because they weren't allowed to, but they found that the soil has been disturbed there. That doesn't mean there were mass graves. We know that there have been wild digs and uh, Polish and Soviet post-war attempts at locating something. They were digging up graves uh, or they were trying to dig up graves to locate um, gas chambers, but didn't find anything relevant and they closed it up again. Uh, and so some of those uh, disturbed soil areas that were found in 2012 to 14 are remnants of the previous unsuccessful digs. So there is only a, a tiny fraction of the disturbed soil area that would be needed if the mainstream narrative were true. So in other words, uh, these forensic investigation results don't jibe with the claims of the mainstream. Again, you won't find that in the mainstream uh, Holocaust Encyclopedia. You will find that, particularly this illustration, too, and an explanation in the entry on Treblinka, because all of our entries on CAMS talk about forensic uh, evidence, the research that has been done, the results uh, that were uh, that were that came out of these investigations and uh, how that uh, how that all jibes with, with these the researchers. Narrative. They must have faced a lot of pressure because finding, you know, getting negative results in on a project like this isn't really something that is good for your career. That's right. The, the lead forensic uh, expert who was who was doing this research, she was a PhD student from from England, and with the way she made a documentary with the BBC, she was clearly indicating that she's she has bought in completely into the mainstream narrative, and she was out on the mission to refute revisionist theses and to to uh, find the gas chambers and find the mass graves. And um, what you see here is all that was ever published that was in a BBC article, and we revisionists critiqued that and said, well, you should have found disturbed soil pretty much everywhere if the claims were true, but you found only a fraction. So we would like to see you publish your detailed data, the raw data of your uh, ground penetra uh, uh, measuring so that we can make a proper analysis and come to conclusions how many uh, corpses could have been buried in this area that you found. And to this day, uh, Dr. Uh, what is her name? Karen Curdy Stalls. Sturdy calls. Sturdy calls, yeah. Um, she has not published her results for good reason because she knows if she does, we'll uh, use that, analyze it, and come out with the conclusions. Well, you, you proved us right. You tried, you went out to refute us. The data you gather doesn't serve that purpose, therefore, you're hiding it because she doesn't want the truth to come out because she knows it's helping people she considers to be ideological opponents. But if, as a scientist, you have ideological uh, motives primarily, it's not accuracy, correctness, and truth that is guiding you, but to refute someone who you don't like, then you're not a scientist. Right. There's there's also, of course, the concern about career uh, at 
And it's not merely personal like or dislike. It's anybody in a mainstream career who gets into this kind of project no, knows no, what they're no. If about. every scientist, if every scientist had scientific uh integrity, nobody's career would be threatened. Because if all 500 million scientists on this planet stood up and said, we support whatever data comes out, there would be no threat to anyone's career. It's because people have no spine. Mm -hmm. That there's yeah, a threat to around the uh, 9 11 issue. Um, so here's a, here's a, so the last camp. So we bore, yes, they made the dig there too, and they found uh, uh, leftovers of, of some building, unknown purpose. It can't be determined from, from the leftovers what the building was used for. They claim it was the gas chamber. Interestingly, they had found it already after the war, then they plastered it over uh, with with a road and a, a, um, a plaza, a, a little square with a monument that you can see there. It's this square pillar. Um, and then they, after several years of digging rediscovered it because they hadn't gone through their own museum archive to figure out that they had discovered it before so this is just some building remnants of unknown purpose and it, it could uh, support any claim because we can't tell what it was was it a, a shower was it a shower building a disinfestation building a homicidal gas jam we just don't know um, but the claim is, of course, because it's set in stone, if you uh, disbelieve it, you go to prison, and therefore it has to be a gas chamber or the alternatives prison uh, throughout Europe. And therefore it's a gas chamber. But it's, okay. There's no way. It doesn't have a label of gas chamber on it. Well, I hope when I next time I visit Germany, they don't uh, demand the correct answer to that question along with my passport. Um, <laughs> so uh, how, how about the Zyklon B issue? Yeah, so... Um, in the mainstream encyclopedias, you will find very little about, about the actual murder weapons. As I mentioned, that's very important issues for any kind of murder case. And in this case, that concerns things like what is Zyklon B? How does it evaporate? How does it react? How does it kill? Uh, what does a, a murdered victim of, of, of Zyklon B look like? You can see a, a picture on the right. It's a, a victim of cyanide poisoning. They look pinkish. Most witnesses, almost all witnesses have claimed they look black, blue, purple, like people would think a person of asphyxiation looks like. Because if you asphyxiate them, someone it doesn't get air, then they turn dark. But it's it's different with cyanide. And um, also another thing is uh, the, 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 the second murder weapon uh, is engine exhaust gas. And I think we have a, a graph on that on the next page. Um, Oh, no, that's an effect. Okay, I forgot. That's an effect of Cyclone B. Uh, cyanide exposure to walls produces a, a blue pigment uh, that you can see here. Uh, top left is in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Top right is a Maidanic cap. The bottom right is a Stutthof camp. And the bottom left is the inside of another building in the, in the, in the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp. Uh, they have been delousing facilities where Cyclone B was used to kill lice. And uh, that is the primary purpose of Zyklon B. It's an insecticide, and it was used throughout uh, Europe and even in the, in the Americas in the 1920s into the 1940s uh, as a, a product to kill vermin. Uh, it was after the war, it was and replaced by DDT, unfortunately, because DDT was, as we know, uh, much worse on nature, on, on everything than, than Zyklon B can ever be. 
and DDT has been phased out. Zyklon B is still around, by the way, and they have renamed it back to Zyklon B. It got a bad rap after the Holocaust series, miniseries in 1978, and they renamed the product to Cyanozeal. Uh, and uh, But because people still refer to it as Zyklon B, they have renamed it back to Zyklon B again in, in recent years. So it's still being used for the same purpose. Well, the only country we get, can get in trouble is in Germany. If you put Cyclone B somewhere on, it may be considered a political message. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, insecticides are not the kind of stuff you buy on Amazon. Oh, Any cool. kind of insecticide for that matter. So I doubt you'll find it there. Okay. Um, yeah. But this is the way a homicidal gas chamber should look like too, but they don't. You don't find any significant amounts of cyanide, let alone blue coloring in, in those homicidal gas chambers. However, in some cases, like the, the, the pictures you see on the right-hand side, it is claimed or has been claimed at some point or another that these delousing chambers were also used to kill humans. Hmm. And um, that is, this is a claim that can be shown to be untrue on, on a number of uh, things. Uh, one of the most important one being a uh, technical one for, for the top right. There is no way of introducing Zyklon B. If you have the room packed full of people, you would have to walk in there, scatter out the Zyklon B, and somehow prevent the people from panicking and running out while you're still in there as an SS man. So it wouldn't work. Um, and therefore, we can say can be said with certainty that the claims after the war by Polish and, and, and Soviet um, investigators that this was used are wrong. Uh, that this was used for killing people. Okay. Um, this is all treated in the encyclopedia. Uh, looking up each camp, it will talk about the claims of what is claimed to have been a gas chamber and what we know today. What even the mainstream has revised when it comes to Majdanek, they said initially seven distinct uh, buildings were used as homicidal gas chambers. They've downgraded that now to two distinct chambers that are said to have been used, uh, maybe three. All the rest has been uh, relegated to the, the memory hall. So when you say two or three chambers, you're talking about which camp? Majdanek. Majdanek, okay. The, the top right image. Yeah, the second big... Um, right, the second big... Uh, murder weapon claimed to have been used uh, that is maintained to this day uh, is engine exhaust gas and for the, the longest time for the Berzak and Treblinka camp the claim was that they used diesel engine exhaust and uh, the, the graphs there that's also used in the encyclopedia shows that diesel engines a particular feature is that they run on a, a massive amount of excess air in other words, they have so much oxygen in them that they hardly produce any carbon monoxide. So diesel exa engine exhaust fumes are not lethal, at least not uh, under the circumstances that they would have been employed for, for claimed gassings. Um, it's different with, with uh, gasoline engine exhaust. They are, of course, highly lethal. Do you, you think, you think uh, the witness, witnesses who claim diesel exhaust might have been influenced by the fact that diesel exhaust in city traffic situations seems to be kind of noxious. And so, I mean, if, if you didn't know better, you might make up, if you had to make up a story about being gassed by engine exhaust, you might pick diesel just because it makes worse pollution in crowded cities. That's right. It's just because the fuel is, it's basically uh, heavy petroleum and uh, that burns incompletely, uh, 
producing smoke and uh, this is highly annoying but uh, when it comes to what part of it ever burns actually burns to carbon dioxide because of the high amount of oxygen that's in in the in the mixture uh, it has to be a high amount of oxygen as it wouldn't ignite by itself that's the the feature of a, a, a diesel engine it doesn't have any spark ignition uh, plugs so it has to ignite by itself you have to have a high compression high temperature and a lot of oxygen for it to happen and so you don't get any carbon monoxide out of it but a lot of smoke because of the type of, of fuel that just burns slowly and incompletely the the heavier you run it uh, on a heavier load and the faster you run the the less complete the combustion is you have have the smoke but that has nothing to do with the lethality of it then down the road it may be causing cancer the kind of smoke that you inhale but that's of course not a way of mass murdering people by by exposing them to cancer um so uh, the the issue is here the 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 mainstream has maintained particularly for the basic and the traveling air camp diesel engines also for for gas vans and the original story for the gas vans that are said to have been employed uh, behind the german russian front by german special uh, units to mass murder jews uh, that uh, in show trials, uh, still during the war and in 1943, the Soviets claimed that the Germans used these vans and that they were equipped with particularly uh, nefarious diesel engines. And the diesel engines were supposed to be very highly dangerous and, and, and their exhaust gases noxious. They have created expert reports on that by uh, by medical experts, even investigating the victims, the alleged victims that they exhumed. Uh, determining they, they died of diesel ex uh, exhaust gas. The background here is twofold. First of all, uh, the Soviet Union actually employed gas vans in the 1930s. The K NKVD, the predecessor of the KGB, uh, invented that murder method, I think, in 1938, uh, when they were transporting dissidents uh, from, from one prison to another. They put them into gasoline engine powered trucks and fumed uh, fu funneled the, the fumes inside the, the cargo hold and, and gassed the prisoners. Uh, that's the idea. It is actually a, Russian, a Soviet invention. And the diesel engine is a German invention. As you may know, Rudolf Diesel invented the diesel engine, uh, I don't even know, around the First World War, I think, a little before, can't tell. Anyway, and it took on very early in, in, in Germany. Uh, diesel engines were propagated throughout the German transport industry and by the Second World were pretty much all of Germans' heavy trucks um, and light trucks were driven by diesel engines uh, or most light trucks, uh, whereas in other countries it was not the case. So that was something very particularly German. Diesel is German and German is evil and therefore if they have gassing trucks to kill people it must be a diesel engine. That backfired a little bit because it turns out they are not lethal, it wouldn't work. Um, and uh, they then had that uh, also claimed for the extermination camps at Bazak and Treblinka, which backfired on them too, uh, because it just doesn't work. Um, we have actually uh, an experiment by British uh, specialists, British experts, I can't remember, medical profession, I think, they used a little diesel engine to try to, to gas guinea pigs, mice, and, and rabbits to see under which circumstances they manage actually to kill them. Now, these are small mammals who are more susceptible to 
these kind of noxious gases so they would die sooner. But in the most extreme circumstances, what they could accomplish is kill all the animals after, I think, four or five hours. That was the best they could do. In other words, if you would try that with humans, you'd probably end up uh, having to wait even more than four or five hours. Does this have to walk the story back and, and switch it to gasoline engines? That's what they they've done recently. After some toxicologists uh, looked at it and says, "Yeah, diesel wouldn't have worked. That would have been extremely awkward, and they would quickly have abandoned it." And therefore, if you look into uh, eyewitness accounts, there are some eyewitness accounts that talk in general about uh, engine exhaust, not specifying which type. And there are a few who actually specifically say say gasoline engine, particularly when it comes to Sobibor. You have one in the case of one or two in the case of Treblinka, and you have one witness in comes to Belzec, uh, who mentions a gasoline engine. And so, yeah, they made the switch. The problem with that is, of course, you handpick, uh, you, you cherry pick the kind of evidence that fits your narrative, and you ignore the fact uh, that if you look at all the witnesses, what they've been saying is, they didn't talk about diesel engines. They didn't talk about gasoline engines. They talked about completely different things, and that's what we can see on the on a, a next slide. I talk about this. Um, it comes a little later. Okay, here's, here's something else. It's there was physical evidence about the murder weapon. The encyclopedia also talks about documents. What kind of documents do we have? One group is air photos. This is an air photo of yeah, just around the time when it's overrun by the by the Soviets in. And uh, at that time, the Germans are said to have been ex have been in the final touches of exhuming some hundred thousand victims in those erosion channels there called Babi Yar and burning them. And as you can see, you cannot see anything like massive destruction of the area by transporting fuel, by by excavating mass graves, and by lighting huge fires. And they would still be smoking and traces would be seen there. And nothing can be seen. So these air photos clearly show it didn't happen. And the next one, you can see a similar thing for Auschwitz. Uh, when the Allies flew over Auschwitz, taking uh, photographs because there was an important industrial area they wanted to bombard. There was a two camp, uh, photos of the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp. In particular, a section is interesting here, where during that time, exactly during that time, tens of thousands of Hungarian Jews were or up to 10,000 or even more, were transported into that camp every day. And because the crematoria said they've been able to cremate only a tiny fraction of those killed on a daily basis, huge out outdoor fires are said to have burned that blanketed the whole area in smoke. On the left side, you see the real area, the, the real photo, exactly the area of the camp where all those open air incinerations and the crematoria chimneys are said to have smoked. And you see nothing. On the right-hand side, you see my rendering of Photoshop, how it would have looked like had the story been true. You see the difference. Right is what is the claim, but it isn't true. Left is the true, but it isn't the claim. Okay. So the Auschwitz uh, air photos are clear. Then we have yeah, our set of documents showing uh, on the left-hand side, we see um, intercepts. The, the British managed to uh, break the code of the the the, the German uh, radio transmissions for a year. They could listen into what the Germans were doing all through 1942 into early 1943. We have from uh, records archives that are accessible at the top. You see a document of a uh, radio telegram that was sent 
And at the bottom, you see the version that the British intercepted, and we can match them up. So we know the British actually did intercept and at times cor correctly understood what was going on. And so we can see the, the British knew exactly during the year when the Holocaust in terms of mass extermination by conveyor belt technology is supposed to have been implemented at Auschwitz. They read all the codes, all the, the, the uh, telegrams sent from Auschwitz to the headquarters in Berlin, and they find nothing. They find a camp that's struggling with typhus, they find a camp that struggles with uh, occasional flights and, and corruption and and this and that, but uh, there's no trace of any mass extermination going on. So the very important primary evidence the British could listen into what the Germans were talking uh, among the headquarters with the concentration camps. They were also doing other things, of course, knowing where German units were, where German uh, submarines were, and so forth. So that's one of the major reasons why the German tied against the Germans. Uh, the, 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 Luck of war turned against the Germans in 1942 and toward 1943 because the British were listening in on everything the Germans were doing. Um, on the right-hand side, documents from the archives that the Soviets snatched from the Auschwitz camp and stored. They were released in the 1990s. One of the important aspects is a massive amount of documents showing how the concentration camp, Auschwitz administration, was planning and building a massive hospital camp with over 100 uh, buildings to accommodate uh, sick inmates from all over the concentration camp system with um, with a special treatment areas where they would do surgery, x-ray station, and, and, and. This was all a massive plan of, of improving the situation for the inmates. In, in today's dollars, they were uh, spending hundreds of millions of dollars of trying to, to turn the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp into a massive hospital to care for, for inmates at a time when the mainstream narrative says that they were actually exterminating those inmates. Oh, it sounds like so the, the German concentration camp system had better universal health care than the United States does today. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, they put their prisoners into a situation where they succumbed to disease. Had they not been in the camps, they wouldn't have been sick and wouldn't have had the treatment. So I, okay. I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. But Okay, um, I won't then either. <laughs> yeah. So you, you see the documents that are laid out and, and summarized in the encyclopedia. I show you a few examples. That's what, what you find here in our encyclopedia. You find, won't find it in the mainstream. They will hide this stuff. The fact that the British knew what was going on, they were telling the opposite in their propaganda of what they very well knew. But internally, they said, we can't, uh, don't, don't subscribe or sign off on the Polish and Jewish propaganda coming from Poland because we know there is no evidence. We didn't know until those... Uh, those intercepts were released, why the British government knew. Uh, but no, we do. They knew at every step. When, when did they release the, the intercepts, Kermit? Uh, around the turn of the millennium. Right. And I had uh, Nick Hollerstrom on my show a few times talking about that. He made much of this right. in, in his book. Right. He was the first to systematically go there because it's not far away from where he lives and to look at all of them and analyze them. Indeed. Right. Okay, so here's uh, here's some uh, motives for the propaganda. Yeah. We're talking about that too. The encyclopedia has a big entry, one of the biggest entries about motives, talking about every country's motive and, and what they did. Uh, also, and, and, uh, 
entry on propaganda, what each country did with propaganda, also on the German side. Um, and there's just a depiction here. This is what's going on in war. You, you increase uh, or invent um, your enemy's atrocities and you hide your own atrocities. That's, that's going on in every war. It's, it's, and that was the biggest and most atrocious war we ever had. So the propaganda necessarily is the biggest and most atrocious too, with the biggest and most atrocious deviation from the truth. And at the end of the war, the victor writes the, the history and don't expect it to be truthful. Right. Because they have to justify their own stuff. Right. Although, although Today, we, should, we should say that after World War I, there was a big reaction against the war propaganda, and the Western countries uh, had didn't realize they'd been taken for a ride with the Belgian babies being tossed around on German bayonets and that sort of thing. And so it's it's kind of confusing why that war propaganda dissipated after World War I, but maybe not so much after World War II. Well, Germany was still standing after World War One. After World War Two, there was nothing to oppose it. Mm, right. Plus you, plus, you had a much more atrocious war. World War One was bad, but nothing compared to World War Two. With the, you know, Germany was completely wiped out. Hundreds and hundreds of cities flattened. Uh, millions of people ethnically cleansed. The atrocities committed by by the victorious powers required a justification of at least the same amount of atrocities committed by the Germans. Roughly 6 million Germans died due to allied war atrocities in uh, aerial bombardments, ethnic cleansing, uh, unlawful, unlawful incarceration after the war, uh, hunger and starvation blockade that continued after the war. So you need justification for all that. And Are you allowed to claim 6 million victims without infringing on copyright? <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you can with that is the same number because the German government after uh, during the war uh, after that had no there was no German government after the war there was no way of document no power wanted to document the German death toll and after the war uh, in 1949 when the German government was reinstituted uh, this government didn't have all that much of an interest in documenting it either they were interested in documenting the war atrocities of the east because they were in the east west confrontation. Of of the Cold War, so they were documenting the the victims of uh, the ethnic cleansing from East Germany and Eastern Europe. But when it comes to the atrocities committed by the Western Allies, the the uh, aerial warfare, the hunger blockade, uh, and the incarceration of of disarmed enemy forces after the war, um, that was completely undocumented and. To the contrary, the German government has always been very hostile toward anyone trying to document it, um, because that would put a, uh, their current allies, uh, France, England, and the United States, in bad light and could undermine the, 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 the relationships to these countries, which are the most important allies and friends now. So uh, there has never been a proper way of, of exactly accounting for that. So. To some degree, it is, is speculation of of how many exactly died in the in the air war. Um, the best of my knowledge is something between six hundred and seven seven hundred thousand is officially recognized. We know that is two point one million uh, victims from the ethnic cleansing in the in the from East Germany and add up to that from uh, Eastern Europe outside of former German territories. This is a little bit murky because we have very little access to data there. Uh, but the rest of it is, is a little bit speculation. You can read in, in James Buck's uh, book, Other Losses and Crimes and Mercy, 
about his estimates, which may be on the high side, but then again, maybe not. So um, like with the Jewish 6 million figure, the German 6 million figure is, is up for speculation, for discussion, for uh, corroboration or refutation. Uh, I don't claim to, to to know exactly what the figure is, but for good measure. Uh, we, we never hear about that for some reason. We, the Holocaust indoctrination that we get is all about the uh, the other side rather than the, the Holocaust against Germany. Uh, so here's here's your breakdown of how that works. Right, right. You have to have a justification. And more justification we can talk about later. Holocaust indoctrination, why don't we question that? Um, we get fed with Holocaust propaganda, particularly since uh, the last couple of decades when uh, school education on this topic has been made compulsory in many uh, Western nations. So we get fed this kind of uh, one-sided narrative from childhood on. So it's kind of hardwired in our brain to have certain reactions, to have certain convictions that you don't question. Um, and it gets reinforced through the whole cultural sphere with the number of museums and memorials. There's just nothing comparable to any other uh, historical event commemorized all over the planet. You see that with literature in particular, uh, considering that roughly four every day in the English language sphere alone, which is the biggest, of course, four books are published every day. Well, we're, we're going to get to six million months, books that way pretty soon. Oh, yeah. So, well, you have a thousand. Well, it takes a while to get to six million with that one. Eventually, you may may get there. We have already several hundred thousand. Um, and and the most important one is, of course, the category of, of, of uh, documentaries and movies that address that topic that has skyrocketed around the time when Jewish demands for um, reparations against Switzerland, Germany, France and other countries has escalated. That was backed up with the uh, propaganda coming from Hollywood. Um, which we know is, is firmly in, in, in Jewish hands. That's probably and a pretty, it has not pretty really good since When they invest in the Holocaust films and it pays pays back in the form of reparations. Yes, it pays back twice. First of all, no uh, country and, and, and cinema operator can really turn down these movies unless they get themselves in trouble. And um, so they are always, and then they, they get good reviews and they get promoted all over the place because that's just, Part of the media, of course, um, and, but then, of course, the cash back is that uh, it, it reinforces the the willingness, the submissiveness of of the goyim to Jewish demands of any kind. Yeah. Also, now you can see it in Gaza. So, talking about yeah, to, going to the next one, talking about motives. Um, what we need to understand, I've spoken a little bit about the Allies in general have an interest in, in, in plastering over their own atrocities and having a justification for the total devastation of Germany and the mass murder of its civilian population. Um, this is a map of Germany and the losses it incurred during this two world wars. The yellow areas were uh, seceded after the First World War. And they, after the Second World War, uh, it was mainly in the East. They didn't lose anything elsewhere. In the East, you see the green areas um, that went to Poland, the pink areas today, the Kaliningrad Oblast that went to, to Russia, and the city of Danzig went to Poland too. Um, this is one of the biggest losses of territories that we have seen in, in recent history, and the ethnic cleansing going along with it was one of the biggest ethnic cleansing in, in documented uh, history of mankind. If, if we ignore the the um, 
the annihilation of, 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 of uh, indigenous populations in the Americas, let's say, more complex and longer drawn out story. Um, and it wasn't really an ethnic cleansing as such. So um, now, interestingly, uh, these most of these territories went to Poland, both after the First World War and the Second World War. If you overlay all that with the next slide, the current borders of Poland, you see that the current territory of Poland, now I'll go one back, uh, we're set, yeah, just one, okay. Uh, the current territory of Poland uh, consists to roughly half of what was used to be German territory. And um, you need to understand that uh, toward the end of the war, Poland always wanted more territory and more territory from Germany. But the, the Polish government in exile that lived in London, when they were confronted with a plan of having all these green territories given to them, was balking. They didn't want that because they knew this is not tenable. Uh, this is too much. The Germans won't like it. That sets up, up, us up for the next war with Germany because uh, no country will ever except this massive amount of loss of territories. And you need to understand that these territories were inhabited by 100% ethnic Germans or a population that felt German and would have voted for Germany. So it's not like they had a, any kind of considerable minority of any sort in these areas. These had been for centuries purely German territories inhabited peacefully by Germans. So the Poles had no rightful claim whatsoever. So they were given that by the Allies. Anyhow, the German population was driven out, among them uh, my father and, and, and his family. And uh, the, the, the Poles were in a situation that they were get, getting set up to be in internal confrontation with Germany. Russia was was very keen on it. They were main, main uh, all the Allies wanted to uh, weaken Germany by taking away as much as territory as they can, kill as many civilians as they possibly could, uh, cause civil strife and and and, and uh, uh, economic problems for the rest of Germany, having to accommodate ten million refugees, and uh, Russia had an interest of pitting Poland against Germany because. Most people might not know, but Germany and Poland up to 1937-38 were allies. Uh, they had a, a, a military uh, agreement to cooperate in case of a Russian-Soviet aggression. The same setup they have today within NATO, because already back then, uh, Soviet Russia under Stalin was, was, had aggressive expansionist tendencies, and Hitler Germany with Pilsudski Poland, both dictatorships, both anti-Semitic, had a pact agreeing that they would assist each other militarily in case of confrontation with Russia. And this is the same again today, um, together with the rest of NATO. The, the interesting thing is that Russia, of course, didn't want uh, Poland and Germany to ever agree again against them, and so they thought it's a good idea to pit Poland against Germany by taking a lot of territory from Germany, give it porn and make the Germans pissed off eternally at the Poles. So the Poles saw themselves in the problem that half of their territory was once German, even though not everything was rightfully German. The Posen area uh, has, has ethnically been always a majority of, of Poland that was given to Germany after the Napoleonic Wars that really didn't belong to Germany. Um, so anyway, if you go to the next area, in the next slide, you see today's Poland and you see all the camps where today it is still claimed that mass extermination took place in so-called gas chambers. So they are all on Polish territory. Now here is the motive. 
Poland needs to find a way of making Germans feel so guilty for what they've done that they will accept any kind of punishment and never ask again anyone for anything to give them back what is rightfully theirs. Right. Okay. So we're talking about the green territories here. Mm. How do you do that? The Germans call that Raubsicherungspolitik. Uh, That's a policy to secure the spoils of robbery. <laughs> you imbue the Germans with a guilt complex. And the way of doing it is with the next slide, all the camps that were on your territory, you depict them as, as uh, mass murder camps. And they were on Polish territory and Polish historiography, Polish post-war uh, investigations were all geared toward depicting all these camps as mass murder camps. Now, we talked about the diesel claims for Treblinka. If you actually look at what uh, the claims were uh, in the, during the war, most uh, reports that came out claimed that murder in Treblinka one of these camps in Poland was committed with steam, which probably points at steam disinfestation or hot showers that were applied to people being transited through that camp. That's probably the origin. On the left side, you see a camp that was drawn by members of the resistance that ended up, uh, I think that was even the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and uh, that, that history changed. If we go to the next step, you see that uh, initially, there were three chambers supposed to have been in the camp. Later, they built another, built another one. Next one, that is a 10-chamber additional building. However, the, the, the system, the, the claims changed with the next one. We see it uh, toward the end of the war. It had already shifted. If we look at what the claims were then with witnesses coming out, 20 who were saying uh, that it was some kind of gas, either from exhaust or otherwise, with uh, not specifying whether it was diesel or not. And um, there were other claims, and one among the more common ones was actually vacuum, which is a peculiar one that was completely forgotten now because a vacuum murder is, is pretty much technically impossible. Uh, it can't be done. Then there were other claims, as you can see, they're listed that are today uh, swept under the rug that some witnesses claimed. Uh, what we, the, the picture you get out of it is that um, witnesses completely disagreed about what happened at Treblinka. Now you go to the next slide. It all changed with Wiernik. Uh, he, after, toward the end of the war, when the Treblinka didn't exist anymore, came up. Initially, he claimed that uh, mass murder was committed with chlorine. Then he got a hold of the resistance report that claimed steam murder with the, the map drawn there. And then he published a report where he completely changed his mind. You go to the next slide. What he did is he plagiarized that map. You see on the left, on the right, you compare them. Even the trees were copied with different symbols. The numbers were copied. The legend was copied. So he plagiarized it and he changed from chlorine didn't assume the steam method, but engine exhaust. Didn't say whether it was gasoline or not. Uh, so you see, he was the one who actually shifted the whole narrative and was then caught on by the Polish judiciary, who subsequent, so subsequently threw all the other uh, witness accounts overboard, ignored them, and went with the uh, Wernick story. Uh, switched from steam to gasoline, gasoline exhaust, even though Winnick himself initially, I mean, when testifying unmanipulated by the report, 
had said it was chlorine. So you see there that it's that it's all made up and um, that they plagiarize and copy from each other. Next one is in, in important camp. That's the Bazak camp. The narrative there. Uh, Bazak, we have only three essential witnesses that testified shortly after the war. And the first one you see here, uh, that is Kurt Gerstein. And he is the one who is the mainstay for the diesel story in those camps, because that's what he claimed with the next one. You can see the, the claims he made. He said it was diesel engine exhaust. He described the building in a certain way. And with the next one, we see uh, that he actually made many absurd claims that have led today to even mainstream historian rejecting him and his tales as completely fantastic, made up and, and boring at lunacy. The things he claimed. Now, I don't want to get in detail. If you want to read the details, you can see it in the encyclopedia. All the things he said, and you realize that the guy, the guy, was was uh, somewhere in La La Land with the things he was saying. He committed suicide in French captivity, and that points at the conditions he must have been subjected to and the mental state he must have been in when making these statements. Uh, the next witness we have is a former inmate and. Um, he actually claimed that uh, an engine, a, a gasoline engine, drove the murder machinery. We go to the next step. But he explicitly said, uh, and the machinery he described was completely absurd. So he made up a fanciful, uh, highly complex, nonsensical machinery that he described he saw and was, and he claimed he was actually maintaining and, and servicing as a, a mechanic. And he said, next one, that the uh, machines, the engine exhaust was not used for gassing, but it was vented outside. So whatever it was that was killing people, it was not the engine exhaust. Uh, he described a similar building. Uh, however, he made it the size very huge, incredibly huge. And he made other claims that, that clearly show the next step that he also uh, was making stuff up, talking about millions and millions of victims, exaggerating stories, talking about all kinds of lunatic things. So he uh, today is as well from the main by the mainstream rejected as unreliable. And then is there's a third um, witness comes up with an exit Kozak who is a Polish was a Polish civilian was involved in building the camp before it went to operational and he describes a wooden hut three buildings a three chambers that was um only equipped with some hot water or steam system and he, he didn't know anything about whether that was for useful killing or not he made no statement to this regard so you have a bystander here describing something innocuous that was probably close to the truth probably a shower or a hot air hot steam disinfestation facility that he had building so that's the evidentiary basis that the Polish judiciary had. And what did they make out of it? We see on the next slide. Keep following. That is the judge who actually wrote the um, the, the the summary on Balzac. And that was then the basis for Western historians to describe the Balzac camp from there on. That was in 1948, I think. He copied Wernick's Treblinka narrative. He turned Kozak's wooden hot into a gas chamber, even though Kozak hadn't talked about gas chamber, but about steam. Of the first phase, like we had a three-chamber building in Treblinka, he took uh, Reda's and, and Gerstein's, uh, Reda's no exhaust gas was used to the opposite and said exhaust gas was used, and he turned uh, the 
uh, concrete chamber by Gerstein and 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 um, uh, radar into into the second phase to have a similar thing like Trevlinka. In other words, he completely reinvented the tale, throwing out the, the, the stuff that he didn't like, cherry-picked what he liked, copied stuff over from, from Treblinka and completely recreated, out of nothing, so to say, the Balzac narrative. The next one is, is uh, the last major extermination camp that we have in Sobibor, and there it's even worse. Right after the war, there were a lot of witnesses because Sobibor had, had a major uprising and some student inmates managed to flee, I think. And a lot of them testified right after the war. Interestingly, they kind of agreed on what the uh, extermination facility looked like. They talked, almost one of them talked about the floors of the gas chamber opening, discharging bodies in a, a space below. And uh, some talked about unspecified gas used. Others talked about chlorine and black substance and so forth. So you, you do not find a single one that actually says engine exhaust gas. Um, now, what did the, the judiciary make out of this? You go to the next. He decided that engine exhaust gas was used, even though nobody testified to that, exam, uh, to that extent. No gas came from showers, even though a lot of witnesses said it. He completely forgot about the opening floors, which almost all witnesses agreed upon. And so no discharge in, in, a, in, in an area below, because technically that would be completely unfeasible, such a yeah, that's massive bizarre, construction what? engine. How did all these witnesses agree on such a bizarre scenario as floors opening up to discharge bodies into the carts below? That's right. I have, we, we can speculate about that. Fact is, the mainstream has this, this idea of the convergence of evidence. If all the witnesses and all the evidence we have point to the same thing, then it must be true. So if all witnesses and all other evidence we have point to an obvious lie, the obvious lie turns into truth. That is the mainstream theory. We had the same 300, 400 years ago with the witch trials when witness after witness confirmed that the, the witch was riding through the sky on a broom and having sex with the devil and whatever else that we're claiming during those years. Witness statements were always kind of the same because rumors and, 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 and uh, talking and whatever exchange was going on between people, general uh ideas in society getting transmitted through lore made people have the simple the same idea and then we're coming up with the same testimony and you have something like that here too these witnesses evidently must have talked to each other there's no other way this this can have come about there's no doubt that this is all wrong that is all made up and we know that all of them claimed they had no direct access to the area, so they were only hearing it from the people uh, working in those extermination facilities or was observing it from a distance. But it's all wrong. And so we all know that they're all telling things that are not, cannot be true. So the judge. So we have a convergence in a lie. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me? The judge decided to ignore the, the opening floors and the carts. Yeah. And then what he basically did on the next step, 
he discarded all testimonies, copied the narrative that he had just created from Bazek in his previous chapter on the same book he wrote, and completely reinvented uh, invented the, the Sobibor story. So the Sobibor story is really completely made up from scratch. Now, when it comes to Auschwitz, we have a similar situation. Uh, it is, however, much more complex because Auschwitz has a lot of documentary evidence and to fake and, and, and fudge the, the, the evidential situation there required much more effort. And it was the biggest effort that the Polish judiciary uh, has been involved in and is involved in to this day. And, and the central judge involved in that was Janssen right from the beginning of investigations at war's end. He was involved in making witnesses somehow magically all testify that four million Jews died and that the cremation capacities were up to par to deal with four million Jews and the gas chamber capacities too. They're all absurd, but they were all geared toward confirming those post this post post-war exaggerated death toll, which even by mainstream historians today is acknowledged to be completely exaggerated. But Janssen somehow managed to get all the witnesses to agree basically on, on the order of magnitude of mass murder. And uh, then together with some quote-unquote experts, uh, rip certain documents out of context, misinterpret them, and have, have a history written together with uh, one of their historians, Danuta Czech, who, who wrote a, a chronicle of the Auschwitz camp, misrepresenting documents and uh, injecting false narratives from from witnesses into the story to get the story to drive in a certain way. John Sane was also the one who prepared witnesses for the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial, and he was himself supposed to testify. <clears throat> but uh, I think the weekend before he was supposed to testify, he died of a heart attack in a, in a Frankfurt hotel, so he did never testify. So he's the one responsible for that four million figure that was later revised down to what was it well, 1.5 million he he didn't start it it was started by the soviets moving into the auschwitz camp but the soviets uh, had a stake of a few weeks of activity in auschwitz and then handed it over to the poles and the poles have been running the show like with all the other camps Maidan, traveling and so forth the poles have been running the show ever since um the the kickstart came from from the soviets and the poles took over and and did the better job even increased the death toll, tried to increase it up to 5 million um, after the Soviets had set it to 4 million. Janssen, in some context, tried to prove that it may have even been 5 men. Um, what year was it that they changed the plaque? They removed the old one in 1991, and the new one was put in in 1995, and by that time it was already outdated. Um, <clears throat> because just a year before, a Polish what, historian what were the, had... What were the from, figures on those two plaques? It used to be five. It's now down to one, one point. Uh, no, it used to be four. It's now down to 1.5 on the plaques. But officially, uh, the story that was published by the Polish, the, the Auschwitz Museum in the year before that was 1.1, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, the, the this is one of, one of the issues that convinced me to take revisionism seriously when I learned that the plaque at Auschwitz had changed from 4 million uh, victims to 1.5 million victims overnight. And the best that Shermer and Grobman could do in defending the official story was to say, oh, at that 
moment they lost 2.5 million victims from Auschwitz, but then historians discovered at exactly that same moment that there had been an additional 2.5 million victims on the Eastern Front who were shot, and so we still get the total uh, 6 million. And, and that was so preposterous that it made me start to wonder about the orthodox position. If you if you came up with that kind of argument, you would end up with egg in your face, uh, because the, 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 this is not quite true. The four million was never part of the six million figure. If you take the four million figure for Auschwitz and add all the million uh, claims that the Poles had for the other camps, one and a half for Majdanek, three for Treblinka, one for Berzak, you end up alone for those camps with a number that gets closer to 10 million. And that doesn't include other camps and that doesn't include mass murders in the East. So if you were to add up all the exaggerated figure for all the camps, you end up with somewhere in the order of Mengdorf, maybe I'm just guessing right now, 15 million. I've never done that tally yet. Um, so no, that, that's that's not the way it works. If you look into- uh, That's what Shermer and Grobman said though. <laughs> Yeah, then they end up with egg in there on their face. So it's it's just not true. Um, Poles have admitted later on that it wasn't the Jews that made up the four millions. What the, the Poles actually did is said, okay, one million Jews died at Auschwitz and three million Poles. The Poles wanted to make themselves look like the, the, the bigger uh, victim than they actually were. And so they invented their own uh, compound of, of Auschwitz victim to make it inflate to the four million. <clears throat> so the, the, the Auschwitz... Jewish death toll didn't really change. It was the Polish death toll that was component on top of it, which they had to take out. Interesting. And um, here you can see uh, claims made about how long does it take to, to burn a corpse in a cremation furnace in Auschwitz. In order to get to the 4 million, you need to have times that are in the range of only maybe five minutes. And that's exactly what those witnesses stated all over the place. To, to come up with that figure, when in fact the reality, top left, is it takes roughly an hour. And we have two engineers who actually were uh, arrested and abducted to Moscow by the NKVD at the end of the war and were interrogated, and who claimed in, in their interrogation, yeah, it took an hour. And we know from uh, experiment, from um, documented cremations during the war and from, from all kinds of technical data. Yeah, it took roughly an hour to cremate a, a, a corpse in those in those furnaces. And all the witness statements you see here, again, you have a convergence and a lie that shows that people were either, when they testified right under uh, at the end of the war, influenced by the propaganda and by expectations by those Soviet and, and communist Polish interrogators seen among them, or uh, later on, People were just parroting what they had read and heard elsewhere. People are not usually in the position to know how long it takes to cremate a, a, a corpse in a muffler unless they have worked for a long time in a crematorium itself. Anyone else is making statements that he has heard somewhere else, hearsay. So they read it in expert in, in, in survivor literature and all the millions of sources that are available nowadays in the media and books and so forth and just parroting stuff. The convergence agreement in a lie. And you see that here with the Auschwitz cremation propaganda. Interesting. So the, the encyclopedia has also uh, entries that says, who said it? Witness claims along the same line, convergence in lies where 
cliches are being transported by witnesses over and over again of things that can't have happened, like flames shooting out of crematoric chimneys. One of the most prominent depiction of this is a survivor of the Auschwitz camp who painted pictures of it. You see their chimneys all over the place doing fires. They can't do that. Coke doesn't create any flames, and it is some 15 to 20 to 30 meters away from the exit of the chimney. So if a fuel that doesn't create flames is 15 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters away from the exit of a chimney, there can't come any flame out of it. It's technically impossible. And even if it happened ever that a chimney catches fire, uh, the, the chimney is not meant to have withstand that kind of heat. It would very quickly crumble and collapse. Yeah, so it's, you have a problem. It's, it's like a hellscape out of Dante. That's right. And it's, it's, it, I mean, it's art, right? It doesn't claim to be true. I mean, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, a lot of other entries, and there are only a few um, shown here. Fat extracted from burning corpses, they can't work. Geysers of blood erupting from mass graves, that can't work either. Self-immolating bodies. Um, we have a list in the encyclopedia. You click on it online, you go to the entry, you find all the witnesses who have claimed. So all linked, you can uh, click on the link, go to the witness and read for yourself what they have claimed. It's all right there. And there are many more of these um, cliches on the Holocaust that are uh, being communicated to this day through the media. Whenever the, the topic comes up and you hear some uh, even eyewitness account talking about these things, they're being repeated over and over again, and they are wrong. They are simply technically impossible, or for other reasons can be proven to be wrong, yet, yet they're being repeated over and over again because it has become an ingrained feature of our society, of our culture, to know, to confess, to talk about these things. If you don't, if you doubt, if you contest, then you will get in trouble. So even survivors are in the position, or have been in the position, when they show up and need to tell a story, the audience has an expectation. They better deliver. And that's what they do. It doesn't mean it's true. Right. Well, we recently heard with Joe Biden uh, trumpeting the 40 beheaded babies story from the October 7th Hamas raid on Israel. That it's uh, it's interesting how preposterous propaganda can quickly get transmitted and people accept it with a straight face. Right. There's... Yeah, cultural things, talking about culture, where, where does the claim come from that bird, bodies burn by themselves? Because we have so many victims that are claimed to have disappeared without a trace. You need to explain how that possibly worked. Uh, upwards six million human combustion. <laughs> That's right. Now, this is a page of a very famous uh, fairy tale in the German cultural sphere. And what people need to know is that Jews in Europe have been an integrated part of the German cultural sphere. Yiddish is a German dialect. The Jew Jewish Eastern community was uh, interlinked with German culture, and there is a sharing of language, a sharing of traditions, a sharing of fairy of everything between the old Yiddish Städel, which is the Yiddish term for the Jewish town or, or ghetto or village in the east, but Städel is also the German name for a small town. So you see, if I hear somebody talk Yiddish, it sounds like a strong Eastern European German accent to me, and I can, for the most part, understand them. Um, now, this is a very famous fairy tale that I was raised with, 
that tells stories about what kids, bad things, bad ideas kids can have that gets them, get them in trouble. One of them is little Pauline using matches and uh, accidentally setting a server on fire and burning to ashes. Uh, so you, as a kid, you get raised in the germ culture sphere, in, in, including the, the, the former Yiddish uh, uh, community, that if you're not careful, you can catch fire and you you burn to ashes. So self-immolating. It doesn't happen. The, the human well, there, body there, there's a discussion on this, Gomer. You know that Charles Dickens in his novel Bleak House uh, described and apparently believed in uh, spontaneous human combustion. Um, but uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence that it happens very often. <laughs> well, under certain circumstances, if you have a, a huge amount of body fat, and you have a certain setup where that body fat can can slowly burn, like you have a wick effect, some cotton that you're wearing, and you are already dead, of course. Um, and, and then uh, the fat on your body is, of course, like a candle; it can burn, and you can can for the most part burn off uh, the water that is there. But you need to be obese for this to work. And if I you're still a meager. And I don't think too many obese people are, are just burning up spontaneously. I guess spinal taps cover. Uh, you know, if you're dead already, you wouldn't. What, the, the fact is, if you have have obese, to this day, crematoria have a problem incinerating obese people. As it has become a bigger and bigger problem here in America over the past several decades to have cremation furnaces that are big enough to accommodate these people, and then they have a, a body fat content of 50, 60, 70 percent of the whole body is fat. This is so much fuel. That in some cases actually uh, the entire crematorium went up in flames because the the, the body fat liquefied over power the cremation furnace flowed out burning out of the, the the cremation furnace because it was just too much and set the whole place on fire. Well, that'd be kind of embarrassing. Uh, yes, if thing you have these people, have once you before. do, yeah, if you have an impoverished, starving, emaciated concentration camp and get a population that you kill and put in ovens there are very few obese people among them so you have people very low in body fat that burn actually way worse than average so this is a german uh, post postal stamp issued in 1994 which shows you this is really a common uh, and very well-known feature of the german cultural sphere this thing this in germany terrible. spontaneous human combustion is a thing in germany who knew that is an explanation why there's a lot of explanation by Jews saying, well, we didn't need fuel that burned by themselves. And you see this in witness accounts over and over again. It just doesn't work if you have an impoverished, starving, emaciated population. But look at all the witnesses. That's right. That's a, a list uh, in the entry of uh, self-immolating bodies in the encyclopedia. You can click on the link online or in the in the ebook version and go straight to these people and see who, who all claimed it. Wow. And there's some who imply it by just talking about how they burned on these people and nobody ever cared about where did you get the firewood from? We have huge piles that we built, but there's no manpower, no person getting these tons and tons and thousands of tons of, of firewood that they allegedly use. So implicit uh, claim that bodies burn by themselves and that we don't need fuel is, is a standard feature of most uh, accounts that talk about the Germans having erased the traces of their mass murder of mass shootings in the east because they were 
uh, not found afterwards when they were looking for those bodies that weren't there, uh, or there were much less. Hmm. Okay, so absence of evidence can sometimes imply uh, evidence of absence. If there are no bodies, uh, <laughs> or not right. bodies, it could be a problem for your story. Yeah, it should be. You know, there's a common joke that I make in this connection. How do we know that the ancient Egyptians already had wireless phones? Uh, I don't. I don't recall that joke. How do we because know? we they didn't find any telegraph posts. Ah, there you go. No telephone posts. Yeah. Right. Right. So the absence of evidence proves whatever claim you make. Yes. <laughs> nope, that's not the way it works. Okay, so, the, so yeah, that's one that's volume. One of, one of the few reference. things that you find in this encyclopedia, I have found actually that. Um, people get so riveted by what they read because uh, the, the entries are interlinked. They're not standalone. We, uh, basically, uh, I, I wrote the whole thing myself with, uh, I'm standing on the, the shoulders of giants who have done all this research over the past 30 years, but I've been publishing it in several languages, in new editions, in various formats over and over again. So I have become uh, so knowledgeable about what is out there uh, so that I was in a, a unique position to write this thing and to keep it uh, cohesive to make all the entries fit with each other, link and refer to each other. So you can actually go to one article and if it refers to anything else, you find a link, you can go there. So it's a, not just an encyclopedia that has standalone entries that it can look up, but it's interlinked. It's a narrative that flows and I've had numerous people tell me they get so riveted by it that they read this encyclopedia cover to cover because there's so much. They wind up in encyclopedia mind knowledge of the issue. Yeah, mind-blowing information in it that, that people just can't put it down. This is extremely unusual for an encyclopedia, but it shows you that there is so much information about Holocaust that is being withheld from the public and that you can find in this volume that people are just amazed and can't put it down. So I'm very pleased to hear that it's more than an encyclopedia. It's a, a, an excellent educational tool. It's all for free. You can, of course, spend money getting a hard copy. Um, and if so, I, I recommend the, the hard cover because it's a big, heavy book. But if you get a paperback, it won't stand up. So it sags, you know, to put it on its face. Um, but it's all available online under holocaustencyclopedia.com or newbook.org. Uh, all for free. You can download a free ebook copy there that you can put on any device, and it works functions just as as the website does. Or you can support us by getting a, a hard copy or the ebook copy with audio version. All the website entries have also an audio option, so you can, can click on the audio and it will narrate the entry to you. Um, so well, it's it's I a service it, to humanity, free service to humanity. In in, in the uh, academy at some point, you know, because it, it's become such a uh, shibboleth in the Western Academy and nobody ever discusses this at that detailed granular level of, of you know, what really happened on these various issues. And it'd be nice to try to steer the uh, global uh, academy back towards free and fearless debate. And I know there are some countries where there would be no problem uh, putting this on the shelves. Maybe you need to get it translated into some languages like uh, Farsi and maybe uh, Malay. Uh, I suppose you could give them the English version over in Malaysia. Uh, Bengali. And yeah, well, this, 
that would be that would be preferable to have it Farsi and Arab and all the other countries where where there's an open mind for these things and they can critically and uh, unbiased look at it and um, compare it with the mainstream, make up their own mind. The problem here is is a cultural disconnect that happens between the West and these countries. Uh, to to find someone to get in contact with, I mean, I know how to get in contact with with anyone in the Western world, even in in, in Central and South America contacts we have there. Uh, but there's basically very little, if anything, of contact going on with the Arab world. Um, if anybody does just... want to help help translate, uh, please get in touch. Uh, you can go through me if you want. I'm truthjihad at gmail.com, and I'll pass it on to Germer, because I, I think there should be another language. Translation, translation, I mean, there's there's artificial intelligence that makes the grunt work, but then it has to be edited by a, by a native speaker. To make sure it's it's a good translation, and that is the work that, that needs to be done. There. Indeed. Okay. Well, thank you. This looks like a really fascinating book, and I'm very much planning to plunge into it and learn some more about this because I'm I'm becoming uh, I'm leaning more and more towards thinking that your interpretation of this is probably much more correct than the uh, the other side. That you know, I've had debates on this, but I, I'm always open to hearing. Uh, attempts to refute the kinds of things we've been hearing from Germer Rudolph, too. Well, thank you so much, Germer. You've been doing really brave work. Uh, keep it up. God bless. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.